As we've announced each day, and as you're all well aware of, the theme for these morning Bible hour sessions has been truth in balance. We have emphasized the fact that overemphasis on one aspect of truth to the neglect of another results in error and dishonor to the Lord. It's even possible to overemphasize dispensational truth. Now, some of you may disagree with us on that statement, but let me illustrate what I mean. Is it possible to overemphasize dispensational truth? I think it is. As Pastor O'Hare used to say, if the devil can't keep you from seeing the truth, he'll push you right through it. And we know some who started out with a very balanced view of dispensational truth and were pushed clear through it. Like one of our brethren used to say, they are now Acts 38. And of course, there are even some who have gone further than that and have ended up in universalism. So it's not only possible, but it can be a real danger. Some dispensationalists can't receive a blessing at all from reading Isaiah 26.3, where we read, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Now, I know that wasn't written to the body of Christ directly, but certainly that's truth which the Apostle Paul also says. And Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which has been such a blessing to many of us, be anxious for nothing, But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now the Apostle Paul is saying essentially the same thing. So you see, that's general truth, isn't it? We started out this series by pointing out that There is general truth, there is dispensational truth, and there is practical truth. And all spiritual truth can be divided into one of those three categories. Much truth is interdispensational, and though it wasn't written directly to us, it is certainly all for us. I remember someone in our church many years ago who was heard saying to someone else, well, that isn't for us. Now, don't get caught in that trap. Because if you say that, somebody will quote to you 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. See? 
No, all Scripture is for us. It isn't all to us. We, we all know that, I trust. But it's possible that somebody may have slipped into the service this morning who hasn't thought of that. I can remember when it was news to me that all Scripture is for us, but it isn't all to us. Say, that seems so elementary to most of us here. But it's really basic, isn't it? And it's very important to see that. Because of the fact that some have been pushed clear through dispensational truth, they've ended up with a cold, factual, and intolerant attitude with very little spiritual warmth. Sometimes those of us who have majored on dispensational truth become so factual and cold that we just don't enjoy a warm spiritual fellowship with others and we feel that we have all the answers. Now you know that I'm not depreciating dispensational truth. I'm for it a hundred percent. But again I say we need to be balanced. One of the pastors said you're going to start flying one of these days you keep doing this. I like what uh, Milwaukee Bible Institute had on their first letterhead. They had on the letterhead teaching all scripture in the light of the Pauline revelation. Now that's balanced, isn't it? When we do that, we won't get off the track. Now today's lesson is from 2 Corinthians. Let's turn, please, to 2 Corinthians 4. I'd like to read verses 16 to 18. In the context, the Apostle Paul is talking about his suffering. We'll refer to that later. But he concludes these statements with these words. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here we have another great truth in balance. First, the sufferings 
then the glory. We can't have glory until first we have suffering. We'll see that as applied to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as applied to the nation Israel, and as applied to the body of Christ. First of all, this principle as applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah. In the 52nd chapter, verses 13 and 14, we read, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished or astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. And here the prophet prophesies about Christ and his suffering, but he also refers to his glory. In chapter 53, with which we are all familiar, I'd like to read a couple of verses there. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. This chapter describes the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Prophesied hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus Christ appeared on the scene and was nailed to a cross. In the gospel account, let's go to Matthew 16, please. Matthew 16, verse 21. You remember the Lord had just spoken about the building of his church. We've already heard about that. But now in verse 21, we read, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Here is the first announcement of Christ's sufferings and the glory that should follow. And you remember the response of the apostles. Peter says, Be it far from thee, verse 22, this shall not be unto thee. 
You would have thought that if anybody should have known about Christ's sufferings, it would have been the apostles, wouldn't you? But no, even though they walked by his side and saw his miracles and heard his great principles uttered in his earthly ministry, the wonderful message of the kingdom, when he said he was going to die, they said, oh no. Even though they had the book of Isaiah and the prophecies of the Old Testament about the death of Christ, they didn't understand it. You remember in Luke, it says that they understood not what he meant by saying that he was to depart from them and go away and die and be abused and then be nailed to a cross and rise again. They understood none of these things. In Luke 24, verses 25 and 26, you remember the Lord in his resurrection body walked with the Emmaus disciples. And in verses 25 and 26 we read, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? But they too did not understand till he opened their minds and hearts. The Apostle Peter writes about the sufferings of Christ also. 1 Peter 1, verse 10 to 12. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, referring no doubt to Isaiah and the other prophets. Searching what person we could add there. Searching what person or what manner of time. For that's what he's talking about. What person or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. When it or they testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desired to look into. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, in what is often referred to as the Lord's kenosis, which simply means emptying. Philippians 2, in verses 5 to 8, let this mind or this attitude we could read be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery or a thing to be grasped after, to be equal with God. 
but made himself of no reputation. One of the revised versions says, stripped himself of privilege. I think that's the thought there. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient or became dependent or obedient to God unto death, even the death of a cross. Now many have died on a cross, but the Son of God was God in a human body dying upon a cross. He didn't surrender any of his attributes. Certainly, he was God in a human body. Paul says in Colossians 2.9, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I believe that's the answer to Seventh-day Adventism and other isms that claim that Christ laid aside his deity when he became a man. The fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in our Philippian passage, the apostle continues, Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him the name, definite article there, given him the name, which is above every name, that at the name every knee should bow. Not his name of humiliation. Now the King James sort of gives that impression here. But we read in Revelation that he has a name that no man knows, that no one knows, that at the name, the name by which he will be called in that day, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is his exaltation. But first the sufferings and then the glory. Let's note how this principle of suffering and glory or affliction and glory applies to the nation Israel. We won't take time to read this, but you remember in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, prays a prayer which prophesies regarding the nation Israel. And in Matthew 24, verses 8 to 13, that tribulation chapter, and as we've already heard here, 
We ought not to read the rapture into Matthew 24. I'm afraid that many do. Out our way, about 10, 12 years ago, one of the large denominations split right in half. If I mentioned the name, you'd know it immediately. In Colorado, they've divided. And the issue was the pre-tribulation rapture. A great body and a great many of the churches in the state of Colorado from this denomination held to a mid- or post-tribulation rapture, and they divided over that issue. This has been the problem with a great many so-called fundamentalists who have been unwilling to recognize the distinctive ministry of the Apostle Paul. And they've read the rapture into Matthew 24, John 14, and other places. Completely distorting the teaching about the coming, the imminent return or coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, verse 8, And these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. He that shall endure physically to the end shall be saved. He's talking about the tribulation. I remember when I was a boy, my dad used to talk about the coming of the Lord, and you know, he, he, he told us kids, he said, uh, you know, it says in the scriptures, he that endureth to the end shall be saved. He says, we have to endure. And I, as a boy, was ingrained by that teaching. And I thought that if you held out to the end, you'd make it. But if you didn't, That'd be too bad. Thank the Lord for uh, some light on this passage of Scripture. And when I learned that salvation was not an endurance contest, but something to enjoy, it changed things a great deal in my Christian experience. Of course, it's the tribulation. And these sorrows will come upon the nation Israel, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved and shall come into the glory. Peter speaks about Israel also and the affliction or the sufferings and then the glory. First Peter 4 Verses 12 to 19. 
Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If or since ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. And so on. If any man suffer as a Christian, verse 16, one of the three times that the word Christian is used in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul never uses the term at all. Believers are not called Christians by the Apostle Paul. And as we've already said, the term Christian means little or nothing today. If you're not a Jew, you must be a Christian. That's the way the world looks at it. He says here, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And then in verse 18, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Scarcely could be translated with difficulty. Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Now I believe that's talking about the tribulation and the people of Israel. That's when this will take place especially. Now I know it was true that the believers of the dispersion were suffering too. Yes, indeed. They were scattered abroad and they had uh, Gentiles who mistreated them. They had to find any place they could to live. And they were being persecuted on every hand. But you know, it's, it's going to be worse in the tribulation. Yes, indeed. And I think that's, this is what the Apostle Peter is referring to especially. In 1 Peter 5, he speaks about that same suffering and the glory that should follow. In verses 8 to 10, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I said one other day that uh, Satan is not operating as a roaring lion today. He's operating as an angel of light. And many believers are being fooled. If he was a roaring lion, we'd really recognize him, wouldn't we? But you see, he comes to church and is very religious. Puts on a spiritual front. And many people get fooled because they don't recognize it. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same affliction are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, why well, that sounds like Paul talking, the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, 
make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever, and so on. Israel's glory is to be on the earth. And though the suffering preceded the glory, the glory was yet to come. Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 6, in the so-called Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I remember when I first came into the so-called grace message. What a joy, and I agree with our brother Sadler, just like being saved over again. Really is. What a joy. And it just turned my ministry right around. Here I've been preaching for years. And when I began to see the distinctive Pauline revelation, oh, what a change. What a change. Some people, and I think some of our young people today, have been brought up in these things. That's all they've ever heard. And they don't really appreciate what it means to come out of the fog. And I mean fog. I remember when I first heard that the people of Israel were not expected to go to heaven. Well, I thought everybody wanted to go to heaven, and I thought sure that Israel was going to go there too. And then I learned that never in the Old Testament did God promise Israel to go to heaven. But he promised them heavenly conditions upon the earth. Now that seems very simple to many of you who are old-time grace believers, but let me tell you, when you first hear that, it really shocks you. But the scripture clearly teaches that Israel is looking forward to the glory on the earth. That's yet to come. Let's not steal the many promises that God gave to the people of Israel for ourselves, as Pastor Stan says. Finally, the truth of affliction or suffering and glory as applied to the body of Christ. Paul's suffering, first of all. We won't have time to look at all these scriptures, I'll just give you the location. Acts 9, 15, and 16. When the apostle was saved, when the, I should say when Saul of Tarsus was saved, who became the apostle Paul, it is told him that he was a chosen vessel And after reading the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul's ministry, we soon learn that the sufferings that were promised him as a chosen vessel of God were to be fulfilled, and they were fulfilled in the book of Acts. Acts 13 and 14 especially set forth his sufferings at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra where they stoned him. I personally think that 
The stoning that he went through at Lystra left him disfigured. He speaks about his appearance in several places. And his faulty speech. And I personally think that he may have been hit by one of those stones right in the mouth. Maybe knocked out some of his teeth and disfigured his face. That's conjecture perhaps, but I, that's what I think happened. What suffering he went through, none of us know anything about that, do we? None of us have been stoned for preaching the gospel. But I often remind our young people at home that the time may come when some future generation, I say the time may come when a future generation will know what suffering really is. We don't know what it is. He enumerates his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. Verses 23 to 27. But in Colossians 1, 24, he rejoices in suffering. And in Romans 5, 3, he said, we glory in tribulations. The Apostle Paul, in his gospel of grace for you and for me in this age, tells us in Philippians 129 that we have not only been promised this salvation but we've been promised that we're going to suffer suffering is a gift most of us perhaps don't want that kind of gift but you know there are some of the Lord's people in this age who have suffered. And no doubt all of us have suffered in some area of our Christian experience. Maybe not. We, none of us have been stoned. None of us have been abused physically for preaching the gospel of grace. But I'm sure that everyone has suffered in a measure in some areas. For when you not only believe the truth, but when you stand for it, you're going to make some enemies. Some of you come from families. I talked to one brother here this week who said to me, My wife opposes me all the time in my stand for the gospel of grace. You brethren who have wives who stand with you ought to thank the Lord for that. Amen. And you wives who have husbands who stand with you should thank the Lord. Not everybody has that happy experience Wonderful to have your own family with you. But I'll tell you the truth, 
not only divides churches, but it divides families. And some of our people have experienced this. Some are experiencing it right now. Very difficult thing. That's suffering. Perhaps in a different area than the apostles suffered. In 1 Thessalonians 3.3, we're told that believers are appointed to afflictions. Appointed to afflictions. That may be an appointment we can't cancel. And in Romans 8, sufferings and glory are contrasted. And I'd like to just refer to that before we close. Romans 8. Verse 18, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in or to us. For the earnest expectation of the creation waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same, in hope that the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty or the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruit. That's singular, by the way, no S there. The first fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit is the first fruit. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Sufferings and then glory. What's the purpose of suffering? I must say just a word about it. 2 Corinthians 1 3 to 7, and here's a portion of scripture that I read consistently for our people who are in the hospital. Whenever someone is flat on their back, I don't think there's a more appropriate passage than this. I usually read either Romans 8 or this portion from 2 Corinthians. Verses 3 to 7, 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Why do we suffer? Why do we go through trial and affliction of one kind or another? That we in turn might be able to comfort and encourage. The word comfort, they're really encourage. Encourage one another. I preached to our folks back home one time a message on the gospel of encouragement. I'll tell you, the brethren need to hear that, don't they? We all need that. We need to encourage one another. That's why it isn't enough. 
to isolate ourselves and stay away from the fellowship of the saints. Because we need one another. We need to encourage one another. Comfort one another. Now go to our text as we read it in closing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Another example of truth in balance. We saw it in Ephesians, we saw it in Romans, we saw it in Colossians 2, yesterday when we talked about shadow and substance, and today again, light affliction, great glory. Truth in balance. I trust you'll remember that little phrase. And those of you who teach and who preach, let's put out the truth in balance. Shall we stand as we close? Our Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of once again looking into Thy Word together. We pray Your benediction and blessing upon each of our folks who've been with us this week in the conference. How we thank Thee for those who have not only enjoyed the truth they've listened to, but are going to put it into practice in their lives, appropriate it for their own Christian experience. We pray your benediction and blessing upon all of our families, all of our individuals, and everyone who's been here this week. May we say it was good to have been here together in the scriptures. We commit the result to thee, and we thank thee in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.